Today, I'd like to welcome you to the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. We will be speaking with Matt Erb, who is the Associate Clinical Director at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, located in Washington, D.C. He does work remotely and lives in Tucson, Arizona. Matt is an integrative physical therapist with a focus on mental health, and he does have a clinical practice as well as being associate clinical director for the Center of Mind-Body Medicine. And he has written this amazing book called Integrative Rehabilitation Practice. And as you will hear, Matt is a huge advocate for yoga therapy in the field of integrative medicine. And I think, you know, I was telling him after the interview that he's like a polymath. He's so smart. The rest of us can't really get our head around all the different ideas he's bringing together throughout all of time and space. So you might have to slow this down, rewind it, say, what was that word he was using? Okay, go look that up. And I don't say that as a critique. I think we need visionary people like Matt. It, it's amazing to get to talk to someone like this, but we also have to take the time to digest what they're saying. My brain actually doesn't move this quickly. I'm someone who likes to be a little slower. You know, it takes me a little while to pull the ideas together, but then I never forget them. So just be gentle with yourself and, and let these ideas that Matt is bringing forth kind of permeate into your cells. And if something isn't making sense, you can listen again, or you can, you know, just keep going. I think there's so many amazing ideas from the indigenous cultures and the traditions and evidence-based medicine. We talk about scientific reductionism versus kind of the expansion of our lived experience into the larger framework of of our individual beliefs and cultural factors and consciousness and all the spiritual dimensions. I mean, we are, we're really taking so many amazing ideas in this interview and, and pulling things together in new ways that you may not have thought of. Matt says, Hey, everything that we talk about has already been said probably by an indigenous culture. We're not saying anything new, but the way that Matt is able to apply that to modern healthcare without losing the essence is pretty spectacular. And I think that anyone who is hoping to become a yoga therapist or already a yoga therapist, I think you're really going to enjoy this interview as I did. So I welcome you to sit down with a cup of tea or go for a walk and enjoy this interview. Each season on the podcast, we try to listen to what it is that our listeners want, and we adjust and we take away some things and we add other things. So very soon, we're going to be having a short one to two minute segment every week called the best of humanity with all the difficulties that are happening in the world today. We feel we need to remember all the good things people are doing for each other also. So each week on the podcast, we'll be choosing someone that we saw or heard about that's doing something amazing in the world to help other sentient beings. And we'll just spend a few minutes celebrating 
how they're being of service through our little series called The Best of Humanity. What we'd like you to do is to dial into this number, which is 909-754-4092 and leave a two to three minute, that's all, not longer, a two to three minute audio on the voicemail telling us about someone that you think should be featured in our Best of Humanity series. And then if you give me permission, I might put your voice on the podcast telling the story for the best of humanity. Or if you tell me on the voicemail that I don't want my voice on the podcast, Amy, why don't you just repeat this and you know you can tell the story. I'll be happy to do that too. You can call in at any time, day or night. This line is not one that rings. We, we check the messages on this line and we really look forward to having you contribute to the podcast in this way, lifting all of us up to show that really good things are happening in the world and that humanity has a chance and that we as yoga therapists are on the front lines with really wonderful things happening in our field individually and collectively. So join me and be part of the best of humanity. Again, that telephone line that you can call is 909-754-4092. And it's the same number on WhatsApp. If you'd like to try to contact us through WhatsApp, you could also leave a message there. Okay. Thanks for contributing. We look forward to this new best of humanity series. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Please nourish yourself, take time for yourself and really relax into listening to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming, Matt. Today we have Matt Erb, and we'll tell you a little bit more about him, but I just want to say hello, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. I deeply admire the work that you do in the world and the way you show up, so thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. We're both from Iowa, I believe. Where in Iowa did you grow up? I was born in Fort Dodge, Iowa, but the town I grew up in was uh, one of the thousands of less than a thousand people. Farm communities just south of there. It's a town called Gowrie. Mm. Okay. So, well, I'm from Waverly, Iowa. <laughs> Waverly, yeah. That's yeah. Northeast Iowa, right? Yeah. Warburg College. Yeah. So anyway, I can always, I can always feel another Midwestern heart beating. <laughs> Well, some people may detect my uh, Minnesota accent because I lived up there for 16 years and that's where my mom's family was from. So people here in Tucson, Arizona, where I'm at now are still commenting, are you from Minnesota or North Dakota? (laughs) Do I still sound that way? (laughs) I saw your phone number, the 612, and I thought, oh, wow, he must have lived in Minnesota. So my dad is also in Minneapolis, so I go there quite a bit. Great. So Matt, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here is because you're an amazing human being and I really admire your work. You've written a magnificent book called Integrative Rehabilitation Practice. Can you just tell us a little bit about that book and what your 
thinking was when you created it? Because I think that frames the whole discussion we're going to have today. Yeah, for sure. I'd start by acknowledging I didn't write the whole book. (laughs) I had many, many fantastic colleagues and contributors that I asked to contribute. I co-authored a number of chapters, authored some chapters, but also have a wide range of rehabilitation professionals, including OTs and physicians and yoga therapists that contributed. So just acknowledgement and a shout out to all of them Mm -hmm. and gratitude. I uh, the book did arise out of, uh, of I guess, my passion in my work. And I had uh, I was working on a program with the San Francisco VA probably about seven or eight years ago. And one of my colleagues, I was, I was expressing concern about how I wanted to teach more <laughs> and that I had these courses on, you know, integrative management of headaches or mind-body integrated care and that it was hard to sell it in rehab. And my friend said, you got to write a book. You, you've got such good ideas. You got to put a book together. And that was the impetus. So shout out to Gerald Kimmel. Thank you for that. And the book really is, I'll start by saying not new. I like to, especially when I'm speaking to, to audiences that are yogic audiences, yoga therapy and yogic teachings to acknowledge that much of what's in the book is found inherently in the wisdom traditions, including yoga therapy, but it's presented in sort of a contemporary Western science-based model. And we acknowledge that. Matt Taylor, who many of you know, wrote a chapter on the, the relevance of yoga within rehabilitation care and also contributed a chapter and said, none of this is new, but this is a presentation of it that uh, we hope will be very accessible and relevant to our contemporary evidence-based sort of way of advancing healthcare. So can I ask a question about that? Because I think there's kind of two camps here. Some people say, if we are going to be accepted by Western allopathic medicine, we have to have that evidence-based core. We have to speak their language. And other people say, no, yoga and yoga therapy is a complete system in and of itself. And it doesn't have to try to shape shift into something else to become accepted. And in fact, we should just present it as an indigenous tradition. Here it is, take it or leave it. What What do you think? That's a hard question to start off with, I think. For me, it's both. And I think accessibility is important that we meet as many people's needs as we can. And so I approach it as if the evidence is there that supports the work, let's let's name it because that speaks the language of of different aspects of systems and organizations and even individuals and understanding the relevance of it, the utility of it without sugarcoating it, without attempting to be covert or sort of try to hide it behind that. So that recognition for me is really a both and. I think for clarity, when we look at the topics of like cultural humility and cultural respect, that naming the origin and sources of ideas, uh, but also seeing that those ideas are uniform across seemingly disparate geographic and cultural regions to come to sort of a, a shared understanding of common humanity. What are fundamental human needs and what informs human behavior? And so the way that we designed the book, I think, I hope meets that need that there's full recognition of the origin of materials, 
and also uh, serving as many people as we can in, in, in their communities, their cultures, their backgrounds at the same time. I love that. And, you know, I, I keep moving back and forth thinking it's a complete science. We don't need anything else. And then, well, wait a minute, if we want to actually help people, we might need to speak their language, right? So I think that's something we're going to continue to struggle with, but I love what you said, both and. I think not mixing levels too is so important because the scientific model may in fact not be suited right. to study nonlinear processes. So you look at the, you know, uh, uh, the nature of consciousness or what for many people are belief systems and metaphysical realities, psycho-spiritual factors and dimensions of people's lives. And if we try to put things into a box that can't be studied, you know, like N of one, how do you put N of one individuality into a randomized control trial? So that's where I'm saying both and I think we use the scientific model when it's appropriate to do so, but not try to justify some of these other realities that are fundamental to human experience. And for me, that's a sociological lens or approach. So, yeah. I love that. And I I think something else that I see a lot of us in yoga and yoga therapy doing is we'll take a tiny piece of a research study, and then we'll expand that into something bigger with all these assumptions, right? And it, it may actually lose its usefulness. It, it, it's just science is studying all these tiny little parts kind of in a lab that don't always transfer to the human experience, which is complex and multifactorial. And so I think we should also be careful as yoga teachers and yoga therapists, not to kind of discredit ourselves in that way. Exactly. And I think some people, well, and of course, who was it that coined the term yogapathy, trying to fit yoga into that? Yogi Ananda Bali. Yeah. I, I think that's the whole purpose of calling that out is that, is that we can fall into that tendency and including at the scientific level. And as I hear you talk, it reminds me in the book that we put together, we talked about both reductionism and the integral lens sort of uh, zooming in and zooming out. And the skill of, of both and being able to, to look down into reduction sometimes can serve a person, it can serve us, but also expanding into the much larger frame of understanding of what informs our lives. And that necessarily involves people's belief systems, cultural factors, for many people around the world, the the existential and uh, spiritual dimensions of our lives. Absolutely. So that kind of brings me to the main point of what I hoped we could touch on today together. And that is looking at yoga therapy within the larger framework of kind of integrative or whole person rehabilitation. And then to kind of get into what are the social determinants of health and these sociological considerations for the profession. So can you frame that for us? Because that was a whole lot of words. (laughs) Well, having been a physical therapist, physiotherapist, as we're called everywhere else, and I'm an advocate for the U.S. switching to physio instead of physical because of the reduction that it implies. But that aside, uh, having been practicing for 23, almost 24 years, 
and repeatedly finding myself frustrated at some of the limitations in the system. I'm a huge proponent and advocate of yoga therapy, and it's the potential that it actually carries as part of the larger healthcare systems that we have. So I see it as, you know, we keep using the word emerging, but I, as from my lens, it's very established and and uh, is playing a vital role. The question is, are people getting that outside of a healthcare system? They have to go and seek it out on their own or, you know, when is it found within the, the system? So that's something I'm very interested in seeing how that plays out in the future. Uh, I know there are some yoga therapists working, you know, in systems now, and we're starting to see more of that, but how can yoga therapy continue to not have to overly mold as we just talked about to sort of try to shape it and then lose some of the essence or spirit or trying to over justify what is an established wisdom tradition over, you know, the millennia uh, within that system. So I think I would start there and we can come back. Uh, I'll see what your response is, but we can come back to this question of looking at it in the framework of social determinants and, you know, sociological considerations on health. You know, man, I have over the 20 plus years that I've been involved in yoga therapy, I've really started out, you know, in the early 2000s saying, we have to get this into healthcare. You know, we have to maybe become licensed and have insurance. But then as I became on the board of IYT and the president of the board and really looked at the landscape, I've actually changed my position a little bit. And I hope this isn't too controversial for anyone from IYT listening, but I really came to understand, at least for me, what I was seeing when we came fully into healthcare, there were so many barriers put on us. Like you can't use sound, you can't call it meditation. You can, you know, like it, it just felt like I was get, coming into a box and putting myself in this little box. And I thought, who, who am I? What am I doing now? <laughs> Why can't I say, ah, as I come into a pose? Why can't, if someone doesn't like the word meditation, why can't I say, find yourself in real? I mean, we don't have to use that word, but to tell me we can't do meditation, I, I just couldn't accept it. And so I was talking to Lori Fazio about this on a previous podcast. She had this same kind of thing happen where they were trying to fit in the mold of the Venice Family Clinic. But what happened was everyone else kind of took their piece of the pie. We do physical, we do mental, we do this. We do. There was nothing left for yoga therapy. So then they emerged and said, okay, well, here's who we really are. Here's what we really do. And do you know, everyone else on the integrative team was like, wow, that's amazing. Nobody's doing that. No one's talking about consciousness. No one is, you know, helping people with their autonomic nervous system. The, the things we really do well, if she said, once they kind of let that light shine, everybody wanted to know more. They wanted to know about the Panchamaya model. They wanted to, to dig in. So now I kind of feel, and I, I want to throw this back to you in just a moment, I kind of feel like we should just step into who we are as yoga therapists and let healthcare decide if they like it or not. Cause I think we have a lot to offer. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think my response would start with uh, controversy is good because it spurs us into our own critical studies in a sense and into challenging uh, our current views and perhaps biases and uh, epistemic 
humility, humility around our current knowledge, because it's always shifting and changing our current perceptions, that it's in a lot more flux than we, I guess, than our egos tend to want to think at any given moment. And in terms of hearing about Lori's, you know, experience of that, I think that there's more than enough need to go around in this world and people will find the approaches and models and services that they need. And so that sort of integrity of, of not feeling like you have to be overly apologetic or to tiptoe around something and to present things as they are, it's probably a growing edge for, for many people um, in many professions as well. But I think calling that out is, is really important. So, yeah. What do you think is the, the thing that healthcare would love to see from us? Like I, I think the whole spiritual side for me is really important. And I think healthcare wants that and needs that. But I also think the whole regulation of the autonomic nervous system and how Porges and Sullivan and you in your wonderful papers have, have shown the correlates of the gunas with all of Porges work. Do you, do you think that's what they want or what, what are you seeing that healthcare is like, wow, that's amazing that yoga therapy can do that. Yeah, my first response is going to the big picture. I frequently am quoting my favorite mentor, Matt Taylor. Of course, I already did once, but he often uses the the concept of wordsmithing and the word remember is re-member, putting parts back together into a whole. That's what I really think people want. They want a greater experience of wholeness. And this splitting that you mentioned, like, oh, we have the occupational therapy and the physical therapy and the psychology and the, you know, it's all of that splitting whole person care models challenge all professions out of the reduction that they're they're at least the title of their profession represents. And what I find is that if, if, if resources are limited, people tend to become more proprietary, not that people in organizations aren't already proprietary, but my, my approach to this is that there's more than enough need to go around. And when services are available sort of on a menu, in a sense, and people have selections, adequate selections that align with their belief systems, with their culture, with their needs, including yoga therapy, that we're meeting more people's needs through various languages, for example, you know, and sort of acknowledging that the book if you read the integrative rehabilitation practice book that it it really advocates for this whole person integral lens which is we openly acknowledge is not new it's found in in other wisdom traditions not just yoga but it, the the presentation of it might be more palatable to someone in our current socio-political or socio-cultural landscape of divisiveness and politics and and religion that it might be accessible and palatable to get the same needs met under a different framework. So for me, self-selection of what types of approaches people are interested in so that we're meeting those needs for as many people as possible is where I go with the question. You know, Matt, I'm going off the rails today. (laughs) All the questions we agreed on are out the door. (laughs) I just want to tell a quick little story and see what you think. I had a kind of a high level spa corporation approached me and say, we want to bring yoga therapy into all of our spas. And I said, well, I'm not really that interested in just giving yoga therapy to wealthy people and making it this spa-like experience. And they said, well, 
this is how acupuncture came to the United States, that it started off for the very elite and they loved it and started talking about it. And it got very popular. And 30 years later, health insurance is covering acupuncture. Many people with health insurance can get acupuncture. So they were, they were kind of telling me like, look, lady, you got to start somewhere. Let's do this. And, and I was like, I don't know. So have you heard that about acupuncture? And do you think that serving the wealthy is a way to eventually have it, you know, trickle down, if you will, to, to everyone? Or do you think we, we need to just throw that out and say, no, we're carving our own path. We're not, we're not going that direction. I said, no, by the way, <laughs> it's a fascinating query. I had, have not ever thought about it in that light. And it's interesting to hear the analogy that they presented to you about the, the course of acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine having spread uh, across time and now much more widely acceptable where we have community acupuncture clinics where people can pay a few dollars and get acupuncture treatments. So from that lens, that makes sense to me as a consideration. I think each person still sort of has to decide what is energetically ethically aligned with where they're at and in their practice and and profession. This does actually not so much off the rails, uh, consistent with some of the topics we were exploring. I'm very concerned about integrative medicine being privilege medicine. Uh, and that's why the integrative medicine for the underserved, for example, was formed as a nonprofit to really look at this. And I, I'm seeing more and more licensed healthcare professionals who have gotten training in holistic and integrative health stepping out of the system. And I sometimes get frustrated by that because then they go to self-pay models and it rules out all of half of my current patient population who are on uh, you know, the Arizona healthcare cost containment system access, they call it here, which is social support, Medicaid level. And so it's harder for people to gain access to holistic services, which is very restricting. So there's a real dilemma here that then starts to get us into that systems look at how healthcare is delivered in general and how people access it and this larger topic of social determinants of health. So well, let's go into that in a moment, but I just want to say, I think a lot of people are confused. They think we have to be licensed in order to get insurance reimbursement. And at least what I'm hearing is that's not true. We don't have to get licensure. We can still find ways if we get the right codes in the system, we could still, if we wanted to work under a physician or someone with a licensed healthcare roof over us, we could get reimbursed through insurance. Is that a, your understanding also? Yes. I, I'm not as, I guess, experienced in the evolution of how that looks for different professions, but it is consistent with my understanding that services of various types can be reimbursed outside of like a state licensure type system. Yeah. I'm with you that I, I want to be able to access that so that all people that have health insurance can access yoga therapy. But I think as soon as we go to licensure that, that gets, you know, it's individual to each and every state. And it's a whole, whole big thing that I'm not sure our profession is, is ready to jump into yet. So yeah. Well, let's get back to this social determinants of health and sociological considerations for the profession. First of all, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I think I would start this by 
recognizing the concept of self-care as sort of a concept that's found in many health and healing traditions, providing that individual support for transformation, uh, healing, growth, evolution. But we sometimes lose sight of the fact that as each of us as sort of individuals with our own mind, brain, body sort of experience are bathed uh, in different levels of environment. So we have our relational or social environment. We have structural and physical and natural environments. More hidden, I think, and less easy to call out is the cultural environments that we're embedded within. And those levels of environment carry influence that is as significant, if not more significant than, let's say, individual lifestyle choice in determining the course of people's health and their experience. And so for me, it's looking at that larger picture of influences so that we can avoid falling into the tendency to not adequately distribute causality. It really has to do with like moral, individual moral agency. If we place health entirely as a product of the individual choice, uh, as opposed to having these upstream influences, we miss that relevance. And I think that that can be pro problematic at a hidden and sort of psychological dilemma that can reinforce stigma and shame in people feeling that they're to blame for their illness. It's kind of like what I, what I was taught. And I, I will acknowledge my own background as a, you know, Celtic descent as a white male uh, raised in Iowa and how that came with its own culture. And of course, uh, growing up with privilege, the, these types of influences, when we acknowledge them, help promote healing processes from that level of, of redistributing the balance of agency. And when I first was learning about yoga, yogic teachings and studies, and, and just Eastern Buddhism too, I spent a lot of time uh, learning and studying about Buddhism. And when I learned about the principle of karma, one of the, I don't remember who it was, but someone said to me that there's a vast difference between the West's view of karma and the East view of it as an opportunity versus a punishment. So it's that thinking of more um, blame and, you know, what have I done wrong and punishment, right? And it's that difference that I think can get missed and that needs to be called out so that we're addressing multiple levels of influence and causality and coming into the best possible relationship to our, whatever our health experience is on a spectrum of illness to wellness. So what I think I hear you saying, you know, around karma is that where you come from, who your parents are, did you have a stable home life? Even if you grew up in poverty, did you have one or two parents that were really having your back? Things like that, many of us take for granted, but that is a huge social determinant of health. I have this conversation all the time with people that having a stable adult that loved you it's like a huge, huge determinant of health. We see this with the ACE scores, you know, the adverse childhood experiences, which I know you're really familiar with. There's so many things that you and I growing up in Iowa kind of probably took for granted and didn't realize how much of our good health was being determined by that. Absolutely. And at the same time, 
persons, regardless of where you're raised and the relative degree of privilege. I once saw a meme on social media that showed um, a person holding one balloon and then the next person had two balloons and the next person had three and four and five and how many layers or levels of privilege have supported you in your walk and acknowledging that. And at the same time, something I've been unpacking myself for the last few years, really consciously and deliberately is how does privilege interact with trauma? So I don't mind disclosing that I myself have been diagnosed with PTSD, complex PTSD at that, and have utilized many different avenues of healing resources uh, from uh, the profound gifts of several indigenous cultures here uh, in the U.S. uh, to the yogic uh, approach and model to uh, the more Western version of mind-body medicine to traditional psychotherapy. And privilege has afforded me more access to those resources, but we also have the reality that people experience mental health and that when we look at mental illness or mental health challenges, how does privilege interact with that? And for me, as I've unpacked that, it can get, I, I use the word kind of messy sometimes to sort through like, you know, when I'm suffering, when I'm struggling around something related to PTSD you know, how the way that I relate and respond to that, how much of my way of relating and responding to that might come out of privilege. And it's a very interesting question to ask. So I'll, I'll turn it back to you, but I have one other thought that, that just uh, comes to me in a minute about, I just uh, uh, been working with um, Lori at Yoga Therapy Today on a, on a little article about mental health in the digital age. Mm. We put something in there about a model. So I wanna come back to that, but I, I wanna see your response first. Yeah, I think the privilege of having access to all of these different healing modalities that you just spoke of, but also the privilege of having a community or a sangha of other healthy, loving people to hold you while you recover from the complex PTSD. I don't know about you, but being in the field of yoga, I have so many good friends that anytime, day or night, I can call and get proper empathy and active listening and support and we love you. And I mean, even when I just got a chill, even when I had cancer in, in May last year, like 1500 people contacted me to tell me they love me and I'm going to be okay. Like I'm still blown away by that. That's privilege. That's huge privilege to have, you know, as Sebastian Younger says, a man who wrote a book, he's a military person that was, studying PTSD and who recovered from PTSD and who did not recover. And he basically said the people who came home from the military with PTSD that had a support system recovered. The people who didn't have a social support system did not recover. Right. That's privilege. There's privilege there and there's also culture. So uh, when you asked earlier, what do people really want? Uh, people want connection. Like, you know, it's that sense. I mean, even though we have individuality when it comes to introversion and extroversion and how we might experience social settings, that that has to be acknowledged. But in general, there is, I believe, you know, IMHO, in my humble opinion, a hardwired need to belong, to be heard, validated, understood, cared for. It's that sort of balance between the the feminine principle of nurturance and the masculine principle of we also want to feel empowered at yeah. the same time. So that how does that emerge? 
But I, I feel that, that in many ways, the Western culture has become devoid of community. Mm. Uh, the, the way that we're, you know, it's like in our work at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, we lead small groups. And in the course of leading those, we find that in our work in Gaza, in our work in Iran, right now in the revolution that's going on in Iran, we're helping to develop a program of group-based support there. And the number of people that sign up for groups is off the chart. Trying to lead groups in the U.S., it's much harder to convince people to sign up for two hours a week for eight weeks. People are jumping on it in certain cultures and in others. We have this different sort of not just familial family-based structure, but community-based way of relating to each other. Yeah. And I mean, I think we both know and our, our listeners know in the indigenous way of looking at the world, everything from karma to your dharma to it's within community. It's, we have this kind of capitalistic neoliberal thing going on here that I'm going to do my self-care so I can be the best version of myself I can be and make money and get powerful. Like that's not a thing. It, it In indigenous communities, it's you want to be happy and healthy so you can support the other members of the community. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, and, you know, if I were to try this is a big thing, but try to summarize the concept of neoliberalism into a statement. I would say that it's the system co-opting the concept of self-care to deflect the origin of causality, of responsibility. When the system, you know, the sociological view of what determines health is that health versus illness arises out of systems and not just that individual level. So the politics of neoliberalism tries to always pass back that that message of, you know, pull up your bootstraps and get on with it. And, you know, this is your responsibility, take responsibility sort of thing. And that's pretty, uh, pretty endemic, I think, and at an unconscious level, though, it's being called out increasingly that the problems of this abusing self-care to deflect responsibility away from the the problems at the societal level. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's both. And do I need to try to move my body? Yes. Do I need to try to eat healthfully? Yes. But that's not the only thing. There's all these societal contributors to my health. And so because those aren't being paid attention to, I think that's why it's getting called out. Yeah. And you, you just named it. It's both. And, and that how do we support ourselves and others arriving at any given moment in the best possible relationship and way of responding to the reality that is, to the lived experience that I've had, and to the nature of societal conditions, because it is laboriously slow, if you're aware of it, Mm. that, that these patterns and tendencies within the systemic level actually shift and change. But I do believe very much in in the concept of interdependence that are, in a sense, you know, I know this language is a turnoff to some people, but I'm not going to be apologetic to it, that our consciousness is interdependent. And so when one person, uh, borrowing Richard Miller's, you know, when we're serving ourselves, we're serving all others. And when we're serving others, we're serving ourselves, that uh, tending to our garden is actually supporting the community garden. 
So it's both and, but we have to have acknowledgement and be realistic about the context of that. So we're not portraying harmful messages to people about why they're uh, experiencing ill health or suffering or distress. Uh, that's where the over-reduction tendency, I think, becomes most problematic. You know, Matt, you're making me think of this wonderful podcast. My favorite podcast is The Hidden Brain. It's like the neuroscience of human connection, basically. And this, today I listened to one that Para Rez recommended to me about loneliness. It's It's the latest episode. And it said in there, and I was just thrown back, it said, people who report being lonely for long periods of time, it's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes per day on their health. That's how much their blood pressure and their cholesterol and their heart disease and their stroke is impacted from loneliness. I mean, it, it goes to exactly what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's a great example. I'm not sure how they arrive at that exact, you know, frame of. <laughs> I don't either, but it was kind of interesting. It he was interviewing the U.S. Surgeon General, so I believe there's probably some research behind this. Oh, for sure, and I mean there. It's it's. I don't think there's any question at all if you look at the research into the health effects uh, associated with general social support, and how that then frames collectivist-minded healthcare. You know, I, I think of Naomi Eisenberger's work in protect in particular that it's not just that individuals who are more socially isolated show increased inflammation. But social support and pro-social engagement actually co-regulates the physiology of inflammation. And of course, that's showing up in, our, in, in the work uh, being done, calling out you know, justice and equity and diversity. Rupa Maria at UCSF and her book, Inflame, gets into that a lot, looking at these, these aspects, uh, for, including from the biological or physiological level, how research actually supports what we're talking about. Do you ever pinch yourself for being alive in this career at this time when, when you can reference some books and podcasts, like we're talking about it, it just kind of blows my mind. Like, wow, they've figured out the pro-social effects on inflammation. That's crazy. I, I oftentimes just kind of have this feeling of gratitude to be able to see the evidence-based medicine to show what the indigenous communities and cultures knew. Right. Yeah. Some of that science, again, noting how we're just discovering things that I think have been understood by humans across many ages, that we often fail to look at the, the potential upside of uh, an illness, for example. So inflammation and sickness don't exclusively induce social withdrawal, which can happen for some people, but in some cases it encourages approaching closer, safe connection with others in order to elicit care. Mm. So when we're in pain, when we're suffering, the upside of it is that it may compel people into the tend and befriend response. It may compel people into the possibility for change or connection or doing something different than our habitual patterns. That's exactly what happened to me with me and my cancer diagnosis. I'm a total introvert, like so introverted. I, I feel like I could live in a cave and not care. But after that experience of needing people to care for me and take care of me and seeing how willing they were, I feel like I've fundamentally changed who I am inside. You know, so I think that's an example of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm, for sure. 
So Matt, did you want to go back to this journal that you're working on with Lori Rubenstein Fazio and tell us anything about that? Because I think that's a phenomenal journal that that all of us should be aware of in the field. Well, yeah, this is the IAYT magazine, uh, just yoga therapy today. So it's mm, less okay. it's less academic than the International Journal of Yoga Therapy with the peer review. But we uh, looked at writing a piece on the relevance of yoga therapy in this digital age, you know, where we're in almost entirely technology dependent. And in the course of putting that together and looking at some of what was out there, including a book written by one of my wife's colleagues, who's a uh, psychiatrist in Boston, I believe, about uh, mental health in general at a sociological view uh, and how the digital age is impacting the growing rates of mental illness. One of the things that I pointed out, and again, I, I, I believe this is why I'm so appreciative of yogic teachings and, and the development of yoga therapy. The British Psychological Society a number of years ago put out a, a model of understanding uh, psychological distress called the, the power threat meaning framework. And it's also consistent with my work and our, our population-wide health work at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. But it's sort of summed up in asking the questions, what's happened to you? How did it affect you? What sense did you make of it? So what is the meaning of these situations? How do you make sense out of it? And what did you have to do to survive? Uh, so what kinds of threat response or threat response behavior that arises out of threat appraisal or the activation of our threat system? Coping would be another way, coping on a spectrum of adaptive to maladaptive. What kinds of coping are you using? And then it goes on to become strength-based which I also have, have so appreciated compared to my physiotherapy education to my yoga therapy education is what are your strengths and how do you put it all together into a cohesive sense of self and story? And, and then do you have flexibility within that frame that that's not always absolutely true? And finally, what do you want to do with your experience? It's not me telling you what to do with it. But what are your next steps and how are your next steps aligned with your individual values and your sense of purpose and meaning? And that's why this ability to access people where they are within the belief system that they're at, the framework where they're at, that actually did inform why I designed the book that I did so that there was a model of whole person care that could be accessed for someone who might not ever be reached by the framework of yoga. Maybe they have a religious or political belief system that biases them against accessing that. And it's not trying to do it in a covert way. It's not trying to hide it. It's trying to meet these fundamental human needs that we just described that I think are consistent with this type of model. So this PTM power threat meaning for me is also like not new, but it's a presentation of it in context to the current mental health care systems around the world that can really help normalize people's experience and help them identify what do you need at this time and how can I support you in that journey? I love that, Matt. I, in the show notes, I'm going to write down all those questions because I think it's really important to, to reflect on. You just kind of spit them out, but each one of those could be a week-long meditation or a month-long meditation. And Exactly. You know, you're reminding me of... of one of my teachers, TKV Deskachar, 
obviously he was Indian, obviously he was steeped in yoga and Sankhya philosophy, but he always said to meet people where they are. And I think that's what you just said too, that although we give the credit to India and we don't want to, you know, capitalistically or use our colonial minds to strip the essence out of yoga and then go sell it. Of course, that's not what we're doing, but there's a difference between that versus saying, I'm going to use these beautiful teachings to meet the person in front of me. And if for some reason they cannot accept, you know, Hinduism, it's okay. We can still do the work together. Right. And it's, it's fundamentally process oriented. Mm. We really see everything as sub processes within larger processes within a life a lifespan that makes it a little easier for us to not rush in to the rescue or to fix or because things are going to take a course that's following hidden determinants things unknowable factors and this requires humility in us and also patience and, and meeting people where they are it's it's for me the heart of process based support or care or healthcare well, Matt, I think that's a great note for us to end on. And if people want to find you, your book, I know you have a clinical practice where you're an integrative PT with a focus on mental health out of Tucson, Arizona, but I assume you may do some online work too. I'm not sure. Where can we find you and and what can I put in the show notes for for people if they want to learn more about you? I think you're such a gem that I want everyone to be able to access your writings, your teachings, and your clinical work. Well, first reflecting that back, appreciate you very much as noted at the start. And my clinical practice in Tucson is Simon's Physical Therapy. I do occasionally work with people remotely, but I keep it under my, my licensure, ironically, as a physical therapist. So I'm only licensed in Arizona and Minnesota. My work as an associate clinical director with the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, you can read about our work in the world at cmbm.org. And hopefully within the next month or two, we have a completely renovated website coming out, but there's a lot on the current one. My own uh, small teaching consulting business is called Embody Your Mind, and that's the website, embodyyourmind.com. Uh, if people are interested in the book or online uh, learning in mind, body, or integrative rehab, the book is called Integrative Rehabilitation Practice, and my co-editor is Dr. Arlene Schmid, who's an OT at Colorado State, also a yoga researcher. And there's a, a website, integrativerehabpractice.com. So the book is Integrative Rehabilitation Practice. I shortened it for the website, integrativerehabpractice.com. So those are some ways to reach me. I always welcome feedback in my own stance of humility always inviting being called out if anything i've said reflects that privilege that we talked about i appreciate the opportunity to learn and grow i have been called out it can bring up my own shame from my trauma history when that happens and i work through that as a healing opportunity so please let me know if if that has occurred for you as a viewer of this and i guess i'll leave it with that very appreciative of your space here today thank you matt it's been my pleasure and my honor. I loved interviewing Matt. I was a little nervous because he is so highly intelligent and almost, as I said, a polymath where he can bring so many seemingly divergent ideas together and help us to understand them. But 
One of the most impactful parts of this interview was at the very end where Matt was talking about this model called the power threat meaning model and how it has so many correlates to how we look at our clients with respect to yoga therapy. This power threat meaning model is a more modern, maybe allopathic medicine or psychology-based model that still keeps the essence of what the indigenous cultures believed in. So I just want to slow down and say the questions that Matt said, and you can write them down. And I think each one would be a wonderful question for reflection, journaling, meditation. So I'll try to read them slowly and you can stop the tape if you want to write them down. What happened to you? So not what is your diagnosis, but what has happened to you in this life? How did that affect you? Mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And as you've healed from what happened to you and how it affected you, have you come up with any meaning around that? What does that mean to you? And what did you have to do to survive this threat, past or present? What types of things helped you to cope? And are there any strengths that came out of this? And how have you put this together in a cohesive sense of self that helps you know who you are and have an identity, but at the same time have some flexibility to know that you are more than that? And last, what are your next steps? What do you need to align with to give your life meaning and purpose going forward? So I will leave you with that. It's a beautiful reflection. And thank you to Matt for teaching us about the power threat meaning model. Please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list, where we give you a free gift every single week. It's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content, and that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. 
Adam Satchel, Senior Media Producer and Sound Engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.